So hopefully, by now, if you've been with us through the book of Hebrews, one of the themes you've picked up on is the idea that Jesus is better. Remember, Hebrews was written to first century Jews who were believers. These people who had a Jewish background who are now following the Messiah who has come, Jesus. And many of them were tempted to kind of neglect Jesus and fall back into just strict Judaism instead, maybe to avoid persecution or maybe just to kind of come back to what was familiar. But that was the temptation they were facing. And the author of Hebrews just keeps saying over and over, here's how and why Jesus is better than the things that were provided under the old system. And it's hard to imagine any single figure in the Old Testament that would have been more significant and praiseworthy than Moses. I mean, Moses was the guy, right? When Israel was a multitude of people, they had come into Egypt as just a family, just a little family clan, and now thousands upon thousands of people living under the oppression of this foreign country that God has promised these people their own land, that they would become their own nation. Moses leads them out of that by great signs and wonders. He's just this amazing figure. And in today's text, the author is doing that. He's, he's going there, right? He's saying, hey, Jesus is even better than Moses. And in verse 1, he refers to Moses in two ways. Let's look at it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And in this context, it seems like the author is saying that Jesus is a better apostle and a better high priest than Moses. Now, we don't often think of Moses as a priest, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, But let's look at these two titles that he assigns to Jesus and is exalting how much better Jesus is than Moses because of these two titles. The first is apostle. So he says Jesus is a better apostle. Apostle is one who is sent. Think of an apostle as someone who represents God to man. And think about how true that is of Moses, right? That Moses would go up the mountain, right? He'd go up the mountain, he would meet with God, and what he experienced there would cause him to come down with his face just like shining so brightly, right? That the people could tell, man, this guy has been with God. And then he took the things God had said and brought it down to the level of the people to communicate to the people on behalf of God. Moses did that. He was in the unique position of doing that. But this passage is telling us that Jesus does that even better. That Jesus represents God to man in a way that's even better than the glory on Moses' face when he accomplished that task. Because when Jesus came from on high down to man representing God, he wasn't just a spokesperson or ambassador or a mouthpiece. He was God himself come to dwell. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Moses was a messenger from God representing God. Jesus was God representing God to his people. And secondly, the idea of a priest. Again, we don't typically think of Moses as a priest. There's a verse in Psalm chapter 99 where he actually is referred to as a priest. And Moses does fulfill a lot of similar functions as a priest. Think about what a priest does. It's the exact opposite. A priest represents God, or sorry, represents man to God. A priest comes before God on behalf of man. Right? Think about 
in the Old Testament when they had the temple and the sacrificial system. The priest would come into parts of the temple that most people could not go into. He was drawing near to God, not just for his own sake, but on behalf of a people. He was making sacrifices to atone for sins, not just his own sins, but for the sins of a people. A priest would represent man to God. One of the foundational things we believe about the person of Jesus as Christians is that he was not only 100% God, representing God to man, but also became 100% man so that he might represent man to God and intercede on our behalf and be a sacrifice, present himself, as Hebrews later will say, as a sacrifice on our behalf. Hebrews 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 3 says it this way, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. My kids have been studying in school um, this artist named Claude Monet. Any Claude Monet fans here this morning? Some of you guys? Okay. You guys will like this. Let me catch the rest of you up like I had to be caught up here. Um, so Claude Monet, Claude Monet was a famous painter. And one of the things that's really unique about Claude Monet is that he became famous while he was alive. Apparently a lot of painters didn't really, their stuff didn't really become popular and famous. And so most painters back then were really poor. Claude Monet is one of the very few who his art made him rich. He was wealthy because he gained popularity while he was alive. So kids, just real quick side lesson there, okay? That's very rare, all right? Okay, the aspiring artist, the, that's the, the, the fact that your art would then one day make you wealthy, he's famous because he's the exception to that rule, okay? So that's who Claude Monet was, but because he was so wealthy, he, he bought some land and built a house and did this giant landscape so that he could then go out and paint those things. I'm going to look at a few pictures of that. This is a picture of his house, okay? So this is where he lived. You can see how intricate it is, and I didn't do pictures of the inside of the house, but go look it up at home. It's really beautiful. It's really cool. But he has all these windows so that he could look out and paint different landscapes. Here's one of the things that was in his yard, this garden he built, and there were many of these, these sidewalks that then had like an archway for things to grow on so you could capture all kinds of colors and textures. He actually had a tributary diverted from a river to come into his land because the land was just flat when he bought it. But he had that tributary diverted in so that he could have this pond. And you can see all the different water lilies there. They're not in bloom right now, but you can see them there on the screen. And then in the back, you can probably barely see this, but there's a, a bridge, right? Because it's cool to have a bridge over a pond. I mean, everyone knows that, right? You don't have to be an artist to figure that out. And so he did all this stuff so that he could then come and then go outside and look at those things and paint them. And I just want you to imagine for a second how silly it would be if you were to go there to Claude Monet's house and you were to be, say, standing on that bridge and kind of looking out, trying to get a panoramic view and just take it all in of this amazing, beautiful thing that's been created. Now imagine if Claude Monet himself walks up to you and he goes, hey, have you ever heard the story about how this pond got here? And you're like, hey, buddy, why don't you bug off? I'm trying to enjoy the scenery here, right? I mean, that would be silly, right? Because this is the guy that made all this and to kind of dismiss him or push past him to focus on a thing that was built. That's kind of what the author of Hebrews is saying. Like when you try to go back to Moses and focus all your attention and energy and affection on that and Moses and the law and the old covenant, you're, you're pushing past the one who created all of it, right? God is the one who did all of it, not Moses himself. He also gives this 
illustration of, it's as though Moses is a servant of the house and Christ is the son. So just take that illustration a little further. Imagine you were there at the grounds while Monet was alive and a tour guide walked up to you. Now, I wanted to, I wanted to be true to the times culturally and all that and just thinking like, what would, what would be this guy's name? So just imagine this, this French guy walks up. So I did a Google search on what's a common French name at that time and the name J-E-A-N came up. So imagine Jean walks up to you, okay? And, um, and Gene's like, hey, man, let me give you a tour. That's how they talked in France back then. He's like, hey, man, let me give you a tour of this place. And you were on this tour with Gene, and you, you looked at everything, and you were taking it all in. And then Claude Monet walks up, and he starts telling you about it. You're like, no, 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 I'm good, man, thanks. I got Gene here. He's going he's to be well taken care of. You can go busy yourself with something else, right? That to put Moses on such a high pedestal is like elevating things out of order. John 1 says it this way, John 1, 16 for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than Moses. Something better has come. And I love one of the things that happens we see in this text this morning. is like, that's, that's cool. All right, we get it. Like, Jesus is better than Moses. But then the author of Hebrews kind of takes that point and broadens it out for us so that we can apply it to our own selves. Look in verse 4, it says this. For every house is built by someone, right? This isn't unique to Moses. Every house is built by someone. But the builder of all things is God. And just an encouragement to always recognize that anything man accomplishes, as impressive as it might be, ultimately the builder of all things is not that man who did it, but God himself who gives man the ability made in his image to create and employ and do impressive things. Things. There was a time in Israel's history when they were establishing themselves as a nation and they were taking the land God had promised them, right? Conquering it, tilling it, making jobs and careers for themselves, right? When they're establishing themselves as a people and as a powerful nation. And there were seasons when that was going really well and God was rewarding their obedience and there was fruit of their faithfulness. But with that came a warning against pride that might accompany those accomplishments. Deuteronomy 8, 17, and I love, I love how this is worded. It says, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So there's this warning that, yeah, you may have some abilities and some gifts and some skills and some opportunities that you've taken advantage of, and you may see some fruit from those things, but don't ever forget that even the ability to do those things was given to you as a gift from God. Guys, and i, I got to be honest, I thought about this in the context of our church. Um, we had a meeting just this week um, with uh, some people who were helping us with some building things um, and elders. We bought this piece of land. If you guys don't know that, we bought a piece of land south of Harrymeyer's Park. We're looking at putting our first ever building that we would actually own on that land. It's exciting. And one of the things we were talking about during that transition and some other things we've got, to, decisions we've got to make is, man, how do we make sure that as we work on that and as we look to build a building that we don't neglect the, the culture and the health of the church itself? right? Because it's a cool thing. I mean, you guys, 
probably heard us say this before. One thing we say a lot is that Crosspoint isn't perfect, but there does seem like there's something very special about it. We want to protect that, right? We want to preserve that. We want this to always be a place, no matter what transitions or changes we have to do to accommodate growth, that we want this to always be a place where someone come in, can come in, feel comfortable, feel like they can be open about their struggles and be able to get connected. And you guys have done a fantastic job of through each transition, serving and attending to one another to make that possible. So thank you for that. But I think as this church grows and as we celebrate those good things, there should always be a little bit of that warning in the back of our mind, right? Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this thing. But always remembering that if anything of eternal significance is going to happen, it has to be because God has done it through us and not a result of simply something we did on our own power. So God is the source of everything. And then lastly, it's going to be our last observation. Then we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of applying this third observation. The church is the house of God. Hebrews 3, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Listen to this. And we, church, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So we're going to leave the second part of that verse, the if we hold fast for next week, because there's kind of a, a caution and a warning there. This is only true if we do these certain things. That will be unpacked in greater detail next week. So this week we're going to focus on we are his house. That the idea is that the church is now the household of God. One of the things we're going to keep seeing in Hebrews again is that the idea that so many things in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament... We're just shadows of something much better that was to come. The sacrificial system is the best example I can think of this. Imagine a priest taking a spotless lamb. Imagine this sweet, cute, white, innocent lamb. Just pure innocence right here. Bringing, priest bringing it up to the altar and slaughtering it. Why? Didn't do anything wrong didn't harm anyone because God's people had done something wrong and blood had to be shed as a punishment for those sins. But this lamb was the sacrifice that died in its place. Fast forward, behold the lamb of God, Jesus, the true sacrifice, the true lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. All this stuff happening in the Old Testament is just a shadow and a setup of a greater reality that comes with the person and work of Jesus. And one of those illustrations we see, there's a shadow, and then the reality is that the temple was a shadow of the church. The temple of God, this grandiose place that they would come and worship and connect with God and relate to God, the central hub they would come to is now finding its fulfillment in us as the church. So as we move through that and apply it, I think it's important to establish some kind of a definition of what the church is. Now, that's impossible to do an exhaustive definition of that on a Sunday morning, right? There's no way we're going to pull that off. But I want to give us a starting point, at least, to answer that question. What is the church? When we say the church, what do we mean by that? I did find this definition by Greg Allison, which I think is really good and helpful. It says this, The church is the people of God, who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism with the Holy Spirit. Obviously, that's not exhaustive. Obviously, there's more to it than that, but that's 
a good starting place at least. He goes on to talk about how there's two different ways the New Testament uses the word church. Sometimes it's like, think big picture, capital C church, right? All the redeemed, all the repentant, all the people of God, right? That's why we, we pray for other churches like Scott did at the beginning because we recognize that, yeah, Crosspoint Community Church is a church and Sea Life is a church, but we are also, in a sense, one big church, right? And then you've got a local church that is more defined and more clearly um, yeah, more clearly defined as a local body of believers. And so when it comes to a local church, here's some things churches do. I'm going to rush through these pretty quickly here for the sake of time, but this is what it means to be not just a few Christians who are meeting together talking about Jesus, but actually be what the New Testament describes and shows us a model for as a church. Number one, they are led by pastors or elders and served by deacons. I'm going to quit doing the numbers because that's going to get old. They possess and pursue purity and unity. They exercise church discipline. A church would develop strong connections with other churches. Celebrate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Worship the triune God. Proclaim his word. Engage non-Christians with the gospel. Care for people through prayer and giving. Stand both for and against the world. So again, not exhaustive, but it gives you an idea of when we say a church or the local church, we're talking about a group of believers that does these things. So, if that's what a church is, and if the church is the new temple, the new house of God, then what? Well, then that means some things for us, and we're going to just spend the rest of our time making these points of application. For if that's true, if we as the church are those things, we are God's people, the fulfillment of the temple, which was a shadow of what we are now, what does that mean for us? Number one is this, that church membership is part of what it means to be a Christian. Now that statement may be a little bit provocative. It may be a little bit, make you go, I'm not sure if I can fully go there with him on this. That's okay. It's okay to have a little bit of you know, thought that goes into this this morning. Um, wrestle with that statement, but hear me out as we walk through this idea. Um, if we were to open our New Testament and ask our New Testament the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? It would be very difficult for the New Testament to answer that question in any sort of comprehensive way without talking about being part of the church. The two things go hand in hand. I think oftentimes we struggle with this idea of that being part of what it means to be a Christian because our, our view of ourselves is so individualistic here in America, right? We have, our culture is all about like, you be your own person, you make your own decisions, you can be whoever you want, you can do whatever you want. That's what it means to live in a free country of America. We have a very individualistic way of deciding and figuring out and viewing our, our, our identity. And if we're not careful, that can bleed over into the way we see ourselves in regards to the church. I want you to imagine for a minute, give me an illustration here. I don't have this stone, so you're just going to have to use your imagination. But imagine I had a stone right here in my hands. Imagine it was about this long, about yay wide, and about that tall. Just this rectangular carved stone. 
Imagine I were to bring that up as an illustration and hold it and say, I want to tell you all about this stone. Number one, the, the, the primary mineral that you're seeing here is quartz. That's why it has this certain color, this amount of translucency. Um, it's this amount of density. It's this amount of hardness and used all these scientific terms to describe it. And it weighs this much and it's this long by this wide by this high. And it's um, this many cubic inches and just on and on and on about all the things that would describe and make this stone unique and special and just describe what this stone is. I would get to the end of that and you would be like, okay, are we done? Like, right, kind of like they're looking at me right now, right? And we're going to stop talking about this stone, all right? We get it. There's, it's, it's a stone, all right? I would bore you to death talking about all those details. There's like one geologist in the room that's like, not me, man. I want to hear about it. Um, everyone else is like, okay, dude, move on. What would change if I were to then at the end of all that say, oh, and by the way, this is one of the original stones that was covered from Solomon's original temple. All of a sudden, that would be a huge deal, right? All of a sudden, this stone would be really significant and really important and really amazing. Why? Because of what it was a part of. Not because of what it was in and of itself. And friends, Peter uses the same illustration in 1 Peter, and he says that we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. That we as individual people are stones that make up this temple of God. And brothers and sisters in Christ, let me just say this to you. The most significant aspect about who you are as a person, about your identity, is not any individual characteristic or gifting or quality or aspirations that you may possess as an individual, but it is the fact that you are a part of the house of God. That is why you're significant. That is what is a big deal about you. That is what makes you something very, very special. Not your hobbies or your interests. Those, those things are cool, right? Those are good things. But what's amazing about us as individuals, as Christians, is because of what we are a part of in the church. Our core identity is not just the sum of our individual characteristics, but is defined by our relationship to God through his people. Romans 12.5 says this way, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I would say it this way, friends, that there's no category for someone in the New Testament who's part of the universal church, but not part of a local church. That is what it means to be a Christian. Now, there are exceptions to that, right? I mean, there's exceptions to every rule. Think about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Philip sees this guy traveling back from Jerusalem. Here's some water. Let me baptize you here. Explains the gospel to him. From all accounts, what we can see, the guy becomes a believer. He's indwelt by the Spirit that day. Everything in that text would lead us to believe that guy is one of God's children now. He's part of the universal church. Now, because he's transitioning, he's on the road, right? He doesn't have a local church to be baptized into, to belong to. But friends, that's, that's the exception. The general pattern or rule we see in Scripture is coming to Jesus and becoming a Christian means becoming part of the church. It's one in the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. In fact, when we have people transition out of this church, or any church really, maybe because they have to move geographically or something like that, and they're looking for a new church to belong to, they tend to feel this sense of homelessness, right? Like they're like a ship out of water, like they're, they're a resident 
without an address. Like they're a citizen without a home. There's this sense of like, I'm not where I'm supposed to be right now. And friends, that's a good sign because as Christians, we are meant to live out our faith in the context of a local body of believers. We often make this distinction at Crosspoint that when you guys come here this morning, um, I would caution you against, if you're doing this, it's very common. I catch myself doing it all the time, but saying, hey, we're going to go to church. No, we don't go to church. We are the church. It's not something we go to. It's, it's who we are. We go to worship service where we gather as a church. But it is so much more than just an event we go to. It is who we are as people, the temple of God, the church. Number two, church is where we commune with God. It's not just how we, the context in which we become followers of Jesus. It is then how we continue to grow and commune with him. One of my favorite passages about the, the, test, the, uh, sorry, the temple in the Old Testament is Solomon's prayer of dedication. The temple is built and there's this really long, amazing prayer he gives dedicating this thing to the Lord as they get ready for the grand opening. I want to look at a few verses from that. His prayer. This is 1 Kings 8 27. He says this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? You can imagine Solomon, right, looking at this and going, look, we get it, right? This isn't like God lives in this thing, right? But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. So Solomon isn't saying, yes, now God may finally move in and live here, right? It's not that, but he's saying this, there's something special about this place that you would meet us here, that this is how you would make yourself known to us and we would come before you in this place that we have made. If we think of the church as the fulfillment of that, it has some really cool implications. And this guy named Richard Phillips, commentator, says this way better than I could. And so I'm just going to read the way he connects those two things. He says this, The Old Testament reveals a geography of salvation. If you wanted to know God, you could not just look anywhere. God is everywhere, yet he specifically discloses himself in a particular place among his people in Israel, and especially at Jerusalem in the temple. If you wanted to find God, you had to go there. Today, if you want to learn about God, you should go to a church where his word is taught. Though God is everywhere, it is still in his house where he especially reveals himself to those who come in faith. And friends, yes, it's very true that you can connect with God and you can get to know God at home in your prayer closet. And you should do that. That's a good thing. But there is something special about the church. That it is the church that is then called the temple of God. Not our individual homes, but the gathered people of God. Where God especially speaks to us and reveals himself in a special way. I, was a, I grew up in a small town called Panhandle. And it was mostly a farming community. And um, our church there, we had deacons that were just like, um, just kind of really manly men, you know. They were just like big, burly dudes, most of them. They all had like 
creases down the middle of their jeans, you know. They walk up on a Sunday morning, and most times the service would start with this. One of those deacons, these big farmer guys would walk up. I, I, I cannot do a deep voice, so you're just going to have to imagine this like 12 octaves lower, okay. They would walk up and they would say, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. Remember hearing that and thinking that's such a cool way to start the service. And what they were saying was not the building. They weren't saying it's good to be in the church building this morning. They were saying it's good to be with God's people. This is his house. This is his dwelling place. By being with God's assembled people, the church, it's as though every Sunday morning we are stepping into the temple of Solomon, relating to each other, engaging the Lord together as a body. Lastly, one of the things that means for us is that the church is the temple. The new temple is that the church should have an outward focus. Oftentimes, Israel would get, they would forget this and they would only focus on Israel. But we're going to see this in Solomon's prayer that one of the intents of this temple is that it would be something that was spoken of and declared the Lord's greatness, not just to Israel, but to all the surrounding nations. And they would all come in because they hear about the Lord's greatness and come to Jerusalem to seek him. He prays this in verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do, all according, do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that the peoples of the earth might know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So friends, in closing, I just want to remind us that while we can come and enjoy the fact that we are now the temple of God and the fellowship we have with each other and listening to the preached word and lifting our voices together and declaring the Lord's greatness as a church, while all those are great and good things, we always have to be mindful to not lose our eye towards outsiders that part of the reason this church exists is to make the goodness of God and the gospel known to those who are not here this morning. That it would be a beacon of hope for a community. I love these prayers. If I wish I could read the whole thing in that 1 Kings verse, we just say, if this happens, if famine comes, if pestilence comes, if an enemy attacks, when bad things happen, would people turn to this place? Church, would we be a people that when bad things happen, people look to the church for answers and help in time of need? That's what God's design for us is, that we would be not just enjoying what we have here, but thinking about how does God want to use us to serve and reach the community around us and even foreigners who do not know of the Lord's greatness. Let's pray. God, would you help us to be that? Would you help us to, while celebrating and enjoying the fellowship and communion we have with you each morning as we gather together, also have a view to how to extend that hope and fellowship to those who do not know you and are not in the church. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.